I think it will be interesting, incidentally, to watch what happens in Canada. Once you make that survey mandatory again, do we go right back up to that 90, 95%? Does it quickly rebound, or can you, know, can you put that genie back in the bottle? Or, is or did it, Canadians get a taste of what right, it was like? A taste like of freedom, to... <laughs> not filling out your survey. So I think that'll be an interesting question. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, we take on perhaps the biggest challenge in this show's history. We attempt to make the Canadian census interesting. For those of you still listening, I hope you'll be rewarded. And look, the census really is interesting and important, both in Canada and the U.S. and elsewhere. Looking at census data makes me feel like a better citizen, more connected to a diverse and changing country. But there's also this direct line between the census data and our lives. Government services, funding for public and private work, election districts, lots more hinge on this data and how it's collected. And that's exactly what's been under threat in Canada lately. So 538's Ben Castleman is here to recount the harrowing journey of the Canadian long-form census. That's in a minute. But first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Excuse me. Can I tell you a number? Sure. Yeah, you look a little skeptical. I don't know why. What's the number about? The number is 22%, which is there was a recent survey that showed that 22% of offices provide free snacks for their employees when they come in. Mm-hmm. This is yours? Yes, our office does supply snacks for our employees. Can I work where you work? You're more than welcome to. Are you able to work the front desk and do reservations? Probably. So you can eat snacks when you're sitting at the front desk? No, you cannot eat them when you're at the front desk. What's your favorite snack at one? My favorite snack at work, Little Debbie oatmeal cream pie cake. I, now I really want to go work for you. <laughs> so for a little more context on the 22% number and this world of snacks at work, uh, Fry Shadea is here, a past guest on What's the Point? Uh, that was Anthony Gambrell, by the way, who I spoke with on the street. But Fry... Where does this number come from and why does it matter? Well, it came from the Society for Human Resource Management, which is one of those many industry associations that tracks trends that occur in the workplace. And, of course, workplaces want to optimize worker performance. And American productivity is incredibly high and Americans work incredibly long. We do not take our vacations We miss over 500 million days of vacation a year. American workers simply just don't take those vacation days. So what do snacks have to do with it? Well, what snacks have to do is that people feel afraid to leave their jobs. There's a lot of paranoia that if you leave your job for any reason at any time other than a bathroom break, that you will be penalized for it. And that's really kind of an ethos right now in the post-Great Recession economy. So we think of free snacks as this kind of nice thing that an employer could do for an employee, but it's really about keeping people physically in the building. And I think of Google as being the sort of prime example of this where they say, oh, if you work at Google, you know, you've got your gym in the same building, you've got your daycare in the same building, you've got the best food available in the same building. It's all right there for you. Isn't that amazing? But then, of course, the real 
one of the real reasons is because they don't want you to ever leave the building. I worked for six months at a tech company, and they served not only snacks, but a chef-catered lunch on a couple of days a week. And believe me, their very young tech coding workforce was very into having a warm meal, because I think a lot of them didn't get a warm meal a lot of days of the week. I mean, you know, part of it is also this communal experience. It's like, if you have a snack area, it becomes a space where people convene. We saw this stat cited in a Bloomberg article that also mentioned that uh, recently Sprint, this huge company, decided to get rid of free snacks, and they cited it as a cost-saving uh, measure. They said that they would save $600,000 in snacks every year. But then Bloomberg went on to cite a different study that had been done by Staples, which found that 2.4 billion hours of productivity are lost every year by people going out to get snacks. Uh, and of course, that brings up a host of questions, which is like, well, are you maybe going for a walk outside and then Absolutely. coming back to your desk and hitting the reset button on your brain isn't actually good for productivity. Maybe people shouldn't be forced to stay in their building. Maybe we shouldn't trust a study by Staples, which probably wants to sell you those snacks that you would go buy for your office. But nevertheless, they're, they're, this is really kind of a, a gateway to like a much bigger economic issue. Snacks are a way to return to our original topic of keeping people fixed in this idea that you must remain fixed in an office culture. But I question the idea of what productivity really is. I mean, are we basing this on, you know, dollars per hour that a person works. I mean, I have many friends who are like, I got so much online shopping done today, or I was able to complete so many of my personal <laughs> tasks while I was here at the office. I mean, is I it FaceTime? so much March Madness. Exactly. Work, yeah. You know? I mean, how are we measuring this? All right. Well, look, there's clearly – maybe this is a subject for a future. What's the point? There's a lot uh, going on here. That said – a few free snacks showing up in our office wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. I'll just throw that out there. Oh, <laughs> trust me. When I was getting a free lunch a couple times a week that was cooked by a chef, I was a very happy person. All right. Farai Shadea, thank you very much. Thank you, Jody. Ben Castleman, 538 economics writer. Welcome back to What's the Point? Thank Repeat. you. Returning guest. I, I know. know. I know. Um, and you're here to talk about something that's actually been on my list of topics for What's the Point from the very beginning, before the show even existed. And every time I mention it in one of our planning meetings, I'm like, I want to do a show with Ben Castleman about the Canadian census form. And by the time I finish that sentence, I feel like half the room has nodded off. I just get media requests <laughs> constantly to talk about this Canadian census. It's just – it's clearly on everybody's mind. Uh, but I think we could do this. I think we could make the Canadian census interesting. And there's also a news hook, right, which is that – well, the new government has actually made a statement about the Canadian census. Yeah, Canadian census appears to actually be a, a big deal in Canada, uh, even more so than the American census in America is actually something that's getting some attention up there. Right. So the new liberal government announced very recently after they, they won this election that they are going to bring back the law, mandatory long-form census, which was a bit of a contentious issue. So why don't you start there? Describe to us what is the Canadian long-form census? What is this this form? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, to, to take this back a little bit, um, Canada conducts its census uh, every five years. The U.S. does it every 10 years. They do theirs every five. 
Uh, the, the main census that gets sent to every household in Canada, similar to the American census that gets sent to every household in the U.S., asks just a very small number of sort of basic demographic questions, right? They ask for sex. They ask for age. They ask for marital status, but just a very, very small number of things. Um, there's then – or there had always been until 2011 a another form that went with the census to about one in five Canadian households. That was this so-called long-form census, which asked about a much wider range of is- issues. It asked about education. It asked about income. Uh, it asked about employment status, right? This was sort of a much larger group of questions. And that's similar to the suite of questions that – Americans who have are the lucky ones who have filled out a census uh, that they, they're, they're familiar with, right? It's that so, same sort of so information. So the, the U.S. for a long time followed basically this exact same model where there was a short-form census and there was a long-form census that only went to a certain group of people. The U.S. has changed up its system a little bit uh, over the last uh, decade or so where we now have something called the American Community Survey, which is conducted annually – uh, separately from the the main decennial census is conducted annually, but it's a similar decennial. thing. Decennial, that's good. Decennial, every first 10 time years. that's ever been used. On we we try to expand our <laughs> listeners' vocabulary <laughs> yes. here. Um, so, but up up in Canada, they they have they had this long form census. It was when you got your census, it either had just a handful of questions or it had this longer form. You were required to fill it out. You were required to send it back in. And basically everybody did. Uh, more than 90 percent of Canadians in the 2000, uh, in the 2006 census uh, filled it out and, and sent it back as, as required. But then – But then. But then. Dun, what, dun, dun. <laughs> what happened to the Canadian long-form census? So Stephen Harper, who was until a few days ago the prime minister of Canada – uh, and, and his government decided to eliminate the long-form census and replace it with a survey um, that was still conducted every five years, but it was conducted separately from the census. And crucially, it was a voluntary survey and not a mandatory census. And this is sort of one of those things that I suspect a lot of listeners are kind of saying, well, how much – of a difference does it make? It's not like they had Mounties chasing down people who failed to fill out the census. Um, but it, it turns out to have made a huge difference. Less than 70 percent of, of Canadians filled it out. So it went from having 90-some percent yeah. of people filling out this information to less than 70. And I have to say – the fact that 70 percent filled it out voluntarily. Yeah, certainly still compared filled. to what we hear about on phone surveys and right. that kind of thing, uh, it, it's a great response rate. But that gap. So the gap is, is significant uh, in, in a couple of different important ways. Um, the, the most important being that it is not equally distributed who filled out the census so or, or the, the, the this voluntary survey. So if you were if you were relatively wealthy, if you were educated, if you were a native born Canadian – uh, then you were very, very likely to fill out the census. And in some parts of Canada, response rates were still well north of 90 percent. Mm-hmm. If you were a, a new new immigrant Canadian, if you did not speak English or French, if you were um, from a, an aboriginal community, if you were less educated or poorer, you were less likely to fill out the census. And so what that meant was is that we – we lose a lot of information that we had about certain populations. And as you're describing the groups, it's often the most vulnerable communities that are where we have the least amount of information. And of course, as we connect the dots, which we will do in a sec, from 
this data to you know government services, then we realize that it's impacting different communities disproportionately. And I mean, I imagine you pointed out in your piece that the the lower response rate has a bigger impact in like rural communities because obviously like sample size, right? When you have a community of only a few hundred people, and again, those are often the most vulnerable communities. Yeah, I mean, in fact, uh, Statistics Canada, which is the agency uh, that conducts the census, they actually lowered the bar for what it uh, for the required response rate in order to consider it a, a legitimate sample and to publish information uh, from sort of 75 percent to 50 percent. Even having done that, even having lowered the bar, they still had more than a thousand communities, mostly small rural communities, where they couldn't publish any detailed information. And so for those, those communities are are invisible as far as the, the census is concerned. Yet we, we still have that sort of basic, you know, population and sex and age, but we don't have information about education. We don't have information about income. And yeah, when we start to talk about government services that are provided, we start to talk about ways of helping these communities. When we don't have that visibility, it's a lot harder to to target those, those programs, and it's a lot harder to judge their effectiveness. So let's let's talk about that. But I do want to hold in our heads and we'll we'll circle back to it. You know, the arguments for and against a census and why this was contentious in Canada and even here in the U.S. But let's talk about what that the data in a census is used for. So sitting on my desk here at at 538 is this book of census maps that I have shown you and that we occasionally will just like look through. And it's this really amazing cool book of map that shows census data uh, in the U.S. and you can see demographic information and you can see information about uh, internet connectivity and plumbing and all sorts of interesting questions. How many toilets? How many sinks? Right. right. So beyond this is neat to know about your country, what is the data that is collected in a census actually used for? Right. So so we are not uh, impartial uh, commenters here, Jody. Right. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I write about economics and demographics for 538. I use census data constantly. We at 538 in general use it constantly. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're census nerds. Um, and, you know, sort of are unabashed about that. But yet yeah, this gets used in, in much more practical ways. So it gets used by the government at the, at the federal down to the local level in both Canada and the U.S. to figure out uh, how to allocate resources, how to target programs, to evaluate programs, to see how successful they are, to figure out where the communities of need are. Uh, it get, at a local level, it'll get used on things like planning studies. How many cars do we expect to go through this intersection? And are we going to need a, a traffic light here? Are we going to, uh, you know, are we going to need more parking, more housing, whatever it might be? It gets used by the private sector a lot. It gets used by businesses to identify business opportunities, to figure out where are my potential customers and where are they headed and where where could I open a, a new location of my of my restaurant. It gets used by advocacy groups to do things like look for signs of discrimination in in housing, uh, or even just to to count to be able to say you know we we represent. Uh, you know, young Arab Americans or young Arab Canadians, and look how many of those people, of our people, live in your community, Congressman, 
uh, you know, representative, it, though it gets used for for those purposes as well. So it, it really is is not just a question of sort of being able to look through like a cool book, book of maps. It gets used sort of throughout the public and private and nonprofit sector in, in sort of myriad ways. So Canada made this change fairly recently, right? Uh, but and you mentioned the gap from ninety percent in the nineties to in the seventies percent response. Are there examples of tangible services that were compromised because of this lack of information? You know, I, I think that what we expected to see was that there there could be sort of longer term uh, erosion, uh, assuming that this policy had remained in place. You know, I, I don't know that that losing that information kind of in once out mm-hmm. of you know uh, all of the the censuses that get conducted necessarily has that big an impact. That said, one of the sort of fundamental challenges here is that we don't know what we don't know, right? We we use this the the household survey data that we did get, make the best assumptions that we can make. Um, you know, fill in the gaps wherever possible and hope that we did a good job of that. And, you know, one of the sort of core purposes of a, a national census is that it ends up being a benchmark against which we can judge all of the other smaller surveys, both public and private sector, that are used in all sorts of different ways. So, I mean, if you think about some of the private sector surveys that get done, those get benchmarked back. The polls that we refer to at 538, they get benchmarked back to census data. Right? How do we know that this was a good sample? Well, did it have the right percentage of African-Americans and, and Asians and Latinos? Well, how do we know how to benchmark that? We know because of the census. But the sense – I mean I've always wondered why we only do – and I know we do the ACS, the American Community Survey, every every year. But we do census every 10 years. Canada's doing it every five years. I've, I've always wondered whether that's actually useful information. I mean our real world changes much quicker than in five or 10-year chunks, right? And of course, so the answer to the 10-year question is is that it's in the constitution in right. the US so that's how we do this uh, and back when they wrote it things probably changed maybe less less quickly than but they you know, do now when when we have a 10 year benchmark right we're we're not just referring back with congressional districts right we're just literally sticking with this is what it was at the last census and that's how we're doing things but with most of what we're doing we we are then uh, interpolating, right? We're mm-hmm. filling in the gaps. We, we know the direction that things were moving in. And then we get a chance to re-benchmark that. When we, when we conduct another census, then we go back, we, you know, we now can anchor our assumptions again and we can go back and we can say, what were the places that we thought were growing more quickly than it turned out that they were or vice versa? And how do we adjust our models accordingly so that we can make better assumptions the next time? So this is obviously bigger, I think, than just a census story. This is about how we use data. And you recently flagged a story we saw written up in the Washington Post, but it was about research that showed underreporting with food stamps is having this really interesting effect. Yeah. So so the way that we we analyze uh, what we know about income in the U.S., for example, that we find out about income and about poverty is through a survey, the current population survey. And we know that people underreport uh, the kinds of government assistance they get. They either may not reveal that they get that assistance at all, or they may underreport the amount that they get because of shame. Because of because of the stigma attached to it, because they may be concerned that if they tell a government survey taker that they get this, that somehow you know that could imperil the the benefits that they get. Uh, we've known this for a long time. It's always been true. We can adjust for it to some degree. Um, but critically, that underreporting seems to be getting 
worse? And how does it skew our view of these services? Well, when people underreport the government income that they get, then it makes those programs look less effective than they are. And so, you know, you can look out there and you can say, we're spending X billion dollars on food stamps, and yet all these people are still living below the poverty line. So we don't know how effective those programs are. And, and frankly, I mean, this is something that really ought to be a concern wherever you fall on the political spectrum, right? If, if you think that these programs, if you're progressive and you think that these programs are good programs that address an important need, then you want to be able to get the best data possible to show how beneficial they are. If you are more conservative, you are skeptical of the effects and the benefits of government programs, then you ought to want to get the best data possible to show how they are not succeeding and they're, they're falling short, that they, they aren't achieving their goals. Either way, we need to have that data in order to illustrate the, the success or failure of these programs. So let's go back to Canada because we have not been in Canada for the last few minutes and I'm starting to feel this a little bit This was billed as a Canadian know, census show, right? Uh, but let's go back to the Canadian census question and what the argument was uh, for getting rid of the long form and it was made by a conservative government. So what, what, what was the argument? So, I mean, the, the core argument here ends up coming back to one of, of privacy and government overreach, right? You, you sometimes hear uh, questions about government spending. But as a matter of fact, it actually turns out to be more expensive to conduct a voluntary survey because since you have fewer responses, you have to ask more people. And so it actually costs $22 million more Canadian dollars to conduct the voluntary survey. They had to go out and send it to one in three households instead of one in five. Because in the end, they still needed the data. You still need the data, right? right? You still need the data, and so it actually costs more. So cost really isn't is an explanation here. So it basically comes down to, do you want the government, even if it's a sort of semi-independent statistical agency, but do you want the government calling up and asking you, how much money do you make? How much, you know, where do you go to work every day? How do you spend your time? You know, what uh, your ancestry, what your ancestry your... is, your race, all of these questions. Do you want the government asking that and not just asking that, but saying you are required to answer? So are you sympathetic to those concerns? Uh, so as as a as a census nerd, not particularly. Um, first of all, there there are no practical um, consequences in this country for failing to to fill out the census. Um, Meaning people don't actually get arrested. Nobody, for gets, ar- nobody gets arrested. Nobody gets fined. Uh, nobody's actually been able to find, at least in the U.S., sort of any record of anybody suffering any consequences uh, for this. But the, these agencies actually have remarkably good records of, of keeping privacy safe. They, they release the data in anonymized fashion. Um, there are sharp limits. Some might argue overly sharp limits on how they're allowed to share the data within the government um, if you want to go – if you're a researcher and you want to take advantage of this data at anything under the, other than the aggregate level, 
you have to go through a whole process to then go and look at this data in a government data center, uh, and it's still anonymized. So, I mean, I think that the the practical implications of this, especially in an age where we're sharing sort of all of this information in so many different ways, uh, is is really outweighed by the the benefits that it that it brings in. Are there particular questions that were the most that felt like the biggest invasion of privacy in the debate that was happening in Canada? I mean, what we know. We can sort of measure that by which questions people are most resistant to actually oh, answering. Right. And so people are less likely to answer or less likely to answer truthfully questions about specifically income, um, government benefits, right? These are things that are particularly sensitive. And this does sort of raise an interesting question about the best way of collecting this kind of information. Um, you know, the government the government, right, thinking about this as, as one sort of big beast as opposed to the reality, of course, which is that it's many, many different agencies that don't always speak to each other very well. The government knows how much money you make and how much money I make, right? They know it because of the IRS. They know it because of the Social Security Administration. They know it because of the State Unemployment Office, right? They know where you and I work. They know how much money we make. They, in fact, if they wanted to link up a lot of other stuff, theoretically, they know how much we save. They have at least a window into how much we spend. But when they actually want to collect statistics on this, they don't look at those sources. They call you and ask, or they call a representative sample of you and ask. Right. So if you look at... This is exactly what I, occurs to me when I was reading your piece, which is if you look at the list of questions and data points that are being collected on the census, every single one of those data points, as you just said, probably exists already somewhere. So why can't we just take those existing data points and figure out how to connect them and just use the information we already have? So I think there are a couple of important things here. One is not all of that information does exist in some government database. Um, there, are, there are questions that sort of can't be answered in any way other than by asking people. Um, let me give you an example. One of the big questions uh, right now is about the job market, right, is about how many people are how many people are working, how many people are not working. But then of the people who are not working, are you, are you unemployed or are you voluntarily out of the labor force? All right. That's actually a tricky thing to recognize in any way other than asking people, right? If you're sitting, let's say you're, you're staying at home, you're raising the kids. Are you staying home and raising the kids because you wanted to find a job and you couldn't find one? And so you just said, forget it. I'll just call myself a stay-at-home dad, a stay-at-home mom. Or did you say after a conversation with your partner, you know what, I would I would prefer to stay home and and we have enough income from you know from you and so I'm going to stay home and do this. The only way to know which category that person falls into is to say, do you want a job? Are you looking for a job? Have you recently looked for a job? So some of these questions can only be answered by surveys. Okay. So maybe you've convinced me that some of these questions can only be answered by surveys, but why does the government need to be in the survey game? Why can't this be done by private contractors? Why can't this be done by Facebook? Are there is there thought that government should just get out of this game anyway and we should be collecting this data in another way? The government can do things with surveys that, that the private sector can't, right? The government can – one thing, it can make it mandatory. 
And as we saw in Canada, there's a really big difference when it's mandatory. The government is better – government surveys are, are better than these other groups at reaching a truly representative sample, a nationally representative, representative sample of residents, right? They reach people who aren't on Facebook. They reach people who may not be online at all. Uh, those private sector sources are not necessarily particularly good at doing that. And again, those are often the people who are most vulnerable and in need of the services that are at the end of – this data set. Now, the flip side of this is that there are absolutely places where we ought to be, and I think where where government economists and, and others are sort of starting to think about how to take advantage of both private and public sector, what we call administrative data. Administrative data being information that was not collected as a survey, but was collected in the in the course of doing something else, but now that we could potentially take advantage of and use in place of a survey. So that might be IRS information about how much your income is. It might be uh, but it could also be private sector information about, you know, what is there a way that we could use Amazon to to know about prices? Is there a way that we could use, you know, checkout scan data to get information about how much people are spending? Is there a way potentially we could use Google searches for unemployment benefits to get a better, a quicker sense at least of how the job market is doing than we could through surveys? The irony, though, of the fact that a, pu- a privacy push to get government out of the survey survey game would potentially make government rely on like Google searches and the form you fill out when you go to your doctor in order to make up the gap in this information is kind of remarkable. You know, I think that there are some legitimate concerns about you know, right now there's lots of stuff that the government knows about you, but that it cannot effectively link up. And you know, I think that there is a there's a legitimate sort of big brother concern at a certain point where do do you want the government knowing kind of everything from day that do you want them knowing you know what time you get up in the morning right I, I get on the subway right and I swipe my metro card every morning that goes into a government in this case a, an MTA mm-hmm. database right they know where I come into work. They yeah, know. Unfortunately, they don't seem to know that you wait 20 minutes, on the I wait 20 minutes. for the A and then the A <laughs> stops for 15 minutes to deal with a sick passenger or whatever. But anyway. Yeah. Well, but so this is actually – I mean this is sort of a, one of the interesting tensions here, right? And of course we deal with this in the private sector all the time, right? How much privacy are you willing to give up in order to get the genuine efficiency gains that clearly come? Yeah. And, and you know, I think that there's a, there's a legitimate tension there about trying to figure out the best way of taking advantage of that. At the same time, what's pretty clear right now is that in terms of the way the government uses um, this administrative data, we're kind of nowhere close to that line, right? There's probably a long way that we could go uh, in terms of better taking advantage of that data before we get to that big brother level. And there's been some bipartisan support for taking advantage of this. Um, right. And you wrote a long piece about these efforts and one of the points of your piece was that – even in the small moments when it's tried to do this, it's really tough and inefficient and the government is is not very good at merging data sets and creating efficiency. Interestingly, one of the big champions for doing this more effectively is Paul Ryan, now the Speaker of the House. Um, he has championed a bill to try to help the government use administrative data better in part because right, he's a conservative 
he doesn't love the idea of all these surveys, but he also doesn't love the idea of the government spending a bunch of money to send people out to ask questions that actually they already, already know, know the, the answer, answer to. to right? right? If if you are a a, a small C conservative who's concerned about government spending and government overreach, at the very least, you know, shouldn't we be taking advantage of the information that we already have? Okay, so back to what's happening in Canada. The Liberal government has now kind of surprisingly that this was one of the first things they announced seemingly when they came back into power, but they are restoring the long form census. So that is now once again the old new normal in Canada. Are there efforts in other countries here in the US to pare down the census? I mean, I think it's interesting that this what's happening in Canada now is kind of a rare win. Uh, for for these kinds of surveys, right, that actually we're making progress towards going back to the old method. I think it will be interesting, incidentally, to watch what happens in Canada. Once you make that survey mandatory again, do we go right back up to that 90, 95 percent response rate? Because we know, again, like what was getting people to fill it out was not a fear that the Mounties were coming, right? right? And so – does it quickly rebound or can you can you put that genie back in the bottle or, is or did it, the Canadians get a taste of what right, it was a taste like? taste of freedom, to... <laughs> not filling out your survey. So I think that will be an interesting question. Um, I, in the US, we have seen a real push to make the, the American Community Survey voluntary. Uh, Ted Poe, a, a Republican congressman, has, has introduced this bill repeatedly. It has passed the House at various points. Uh, the Senate has thus far – has thus far always stopped it, but uh, but he is pushing to make it uh, voluntary. There have also been substantial funding cuts to the to the Census Bureau uh, and to other statistical agencies that have resulted in them pulling back on on some uh, some of the sort of smaller programs that they do, some of the smaller data products, um, and also there's a concern that it makes it more difficult for the census to do the kinds of things that we've been talking about here in terms of using innovative ways to collect this data in a more efficient way. This happened recently, a, a bill that would have funded the census's efforts to create efficiency and investigate new ways to save money yep. got pulled back. Well, right. A lot of this use of administrative data actually requires a, a fair amount of, of work on the front end, right? You need to figure out where that data is. You need to figure out how to get it formatted into a way that is useful. That that sort of sounds like a very small thing, but actually in many cases can be a pretty major project. If it's being collected at the state level, you need to standardize the way that's done. But then the other thing you need to do is you need to be able to test it against the kind of data that you've been collecting in surveys so you can sync them up, right? Otherwise, you sort of one day have this totally new mm -hmm. survey source and you have no idea, was there a change there or is it just that this method of collecting this data reveals something different than this older way? All right. It's fall of 2015. When is the next ACS? The, the, the ACS goes, or, goes on at all times. Okay. You are constantly being ACS. It's all around it us. It is all around and us. And the next decennial survey – the next decennial survey is in 2020, 2020. which I, sounds like a long way away, but they are very much starting to gear up for it. And I know you're counting, and you have the big uh, census decennial countdown, the countdown clock, clock on your desk. Right here it comes. I know, so we can just walk over and check that out every time. But Ben Kassman, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. If after 20 minutes of census talk, you still want more, we've linked to all of Ben's reporting on this issue and some of those cool census maps to look at on our website, 538.com slash podcast. You can also find a video of me and Ben chatting on the site now as well. 
What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. We post all of the 538 videos, by the way, to Facebook. So if you want to catch up on them, be sure to find us there. Sarah Patterson is our intern. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com. Keep the suggestions for future shows coming. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Find a link to download the theme song he wrote for this podcast on our website, 538.com slash podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. What's the point, listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Neil Payne. And together, we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. Kate, how would you describe the show if you had to do it in like five seconds? It's freaking awesome. Okay, Neil? We take down hot takes. Look at that. That's we- sort of the title. Good point. <laughs> so if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and ha- hear about the data and the stats and the analytics that take them down, subscribe in the iTunes store, search for Hot Takedown. To find us, we'll talk to you then. Do it.